thanks for being here. I think we're just going to jump straight in uh, to the message that we had for today. And we're in a bit of a gap week right now, which is convenient. Uh, we wrapped up our Covenant Relationship Series last week talking about uh, the covenant of marriage. And um, uh, oh, that was just super rich. And we kind of felt it was just kind of business as normal last week. Let's just wrap up our series. Uh, but this week we thought that it would be good um, to uh, address a bit more of the sign of the times uh, because it's strange days these days. And so as I was thinking and praying this week about what would best serve and, and love us as a church, uh, thinking and praying a lot about um, what God would want to say to our community in this time. And so uh, I have been so comforted by all that God has been speaking to me this week. And uh, it seems as though, uh, if I could kind of sum up what I feel like is happening in the world right now, is that the world seems as though it's being humbled is the word that I would use. Maybe you feel that way too. And I just feel like um, I feel humbled personally and that I'm just not that powerful. I'm just not, uh, I'm just not that capable of building a kingdom for myself. And everything's a little shaky. And the stability of the things that I lean on so much have gotten shaken this week. And for so many around the world, this is, this is just the case. And so I feel personally humbled. And what's nice about being humbled and your foundations being shaken is that, uh, I don't know about you, but my soul just feels very quiet. And it feels in a posture of being able to hear something. It feels like, it feels like uh, God's trying to speak. And the noise of this world has kind of been stripped back. I don't know about you, but I'm a little antsy inside with this whole social distancing thing. And um, I'm an extrovert. And to top it all off, this last week I fell on my bike and now my knee really hurts and I can't even go for walks. And I'm just like, ah, I'm just kind of stuck with myself right now. And uh, I'm like, okay, Lord, what do you want to say? And here's, what, here's the way that I feel. And I'm being honest with you. Um, I have a feeling of anticipation. I actually feel super full of hope and strangely peaceful, given all that's going on in the world. Now, what I'm not saying is, uh, I'm not saying that I'm ignoring the facts about the realities of uh, what this virus has been doing. And I don't just wanna, I don't wanna belittle the state of affairs. Okay, so that just needs to be said. But I'd be lying if I said that I didn't I wasn't uh, in wonder of God in what he's up to. So here, don't hear what I'm not saying in that uh, I want to acknowledge the reality of the situation. But as I've paused and reflected on the state of affairs, I'm, uh, anticipation would be the word that I would use. Okay, so ant anticipation for what? I should probably take you through this. Uh, Winston Churchill is probably one of my favorite public figures in, uh, well, ever. I just think he's fascinating. If you haven't watched the movie The Darkest Hour, I think it's one of my favorite movies. It's just a story about his character in World War II. And literally the world just being on that guy's shoulders is a fascinating <laughs> depiction of uh, heroism, actually. Uh, and he has an interesting quote, which is a little bit tension-filled, and I'm going to unpack it, but I thought it you know, set us up nicely. And it says this, uh, To each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing, unique to them and fitted to their talents. 
What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. That's Winston Churchill. Um, I get the sense that the church is being figuratively tapped on the shoulder in this time. And this could be the church's finest hour. That's the way that I feel. So, here's the issue though. Is usually when uh, Christians and church folk drum up, uh, I don't know what you call it, they drum up uh, some momentum or some excitement or some like, here we go, we're going to do this thing. <laughs> Typically, it looks a lot like what we're going to go do now. Like we came up with some new plan and we have some idea that we really like and uh, this podcast we're really stoked on and there's this new event that we want to try and some new training material and uh, I don't know what else we do. And those things are great. We get excited about them all the time. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm guilty of this too because like I'm an ideas guy. I like ideas. I... I actually rely on them a lot. I like to think that I'm someone who comes up with ideas and comes up with creative ways to uh, approach problems. And what I've realized is that I have no idea what, what to do <laughs> right now. All of those things that I'm used to getting excited about, all of those things where I'm like, all right, tap on the shoulder, Jonathan, here we go, go do a thing. All of the things that I would naturally go do, we can't do right now. They're not options. So I feel a little stuck. And I feel unprepared and unqualified, like Winston Churchill was saying. What a shame if uh, the world presented an opportunity to do something amazing, and if you were tapped on the shoulder, what a shame if you were unprepared and unqualified. I feel unprepared and unqualified for whatever it is that uh, is supposed to happen right now through the church for this world. But here's what I realized, is that Jesus is not unprepared or unqualified. And he is the head of the church, and he is the head of this community that we call his bride that loves him and is his voice to this world. He's leading that thing. And he is not unprepared. In fact, he's fully in control. So when I imagine the church being tapped on the shoulder, being like, hey, this is a moment. I don't think this is a moment for us to go, what are we going to do? Oh, shoot, I don't know what to do. And all my plans and all my things that I would have gone to right now aren't going to work. Uh, instead, I think he's asking us to do something else. And uh, we must, in this time, shift our focus onto what God wants to do. Because I think he has some plans. And I think he has some hopes. And I don't think he's deterred by the state of affairs right now. So this is the impression that I'm getting. Because uh, we have the hope of the world. Like we have the message that everybody needs to hear. That there is no reason to be afraid. That there's a God who's in control that holds the world in his hands. And uh, I think the church is being tapped on the shoulder right now to stand in the gap in this awkward silence that you and I find ourselves in. And I find myself excited by it. 
And part of the reason why I'm excited is he just has to come through because I don't know what to do. I'm standing here in a garage. <laughs> I guess it's like six bikes over there, some tires right here. You can't see them, but I can. And I'm like, this is laughable. This is laughable. So here's what, here's what comes to mind is when I look around and I'm like, okay, what could the church possibly have to offer? It seems like an unlikely hero right now. All the things that we see, we can't even meet on Sundays. Well, can we do D groups? Are they virtual? Do they even work if they're virtual? <laughs> the front doors of our community have been these parties that we do. What are we going to do? So the church right now feels like an unlikely hero. And as I've been pondering, what does that mean? If he's tapping us on the shoulder and go, I've appointed you for such a time as this because you bear the hope of the world. Also, uh, none of your plans are going to work at the moment. What's going on? Oh, we just seem like such unlikely heroes. At least I, I feel that way. Maybe you do too. So, there's a Bible story that comes to mind for me. And, uh, and it's Gideon. And it's one of my favorites. And I've preached on this before. Probably because I gravitate to it a lot. Just because I think it's such a great story. And uh, Gideon, is an un he's an unlikely hero. And I'll sum up the story for you. And he's found, he's, found, uh, he's found threshing wheat in a wine press by God because he's afraid of these, of these people called the Midianites that have totally taken over and ravaged Israel and ravaged uh, God's people. And uh, he's hiding, trying to make food in, a, in the place where it's not supposed to be made simply just to stay out of sight. And it's, uh, it's desperate times for God's people in this story. And Gideon, you know, he labels himself as the least in his tribe and not worthy of being selected to do anything great. And yet, the, the God comes to him as he's hiding and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> and Gideon kind of has this approach where he like looks past him and he goes, Who, me? And I can identify with him right now in that. Who, me? Really? You see what's going on? I'm the least of these. Uh, the church was against the ropes two weeks ago. Never mind now. Now we can't even meet. <laughs> and yet the Lord would come and go, I'm with you. Mighty warrior. It's almost like he's rubbing it in. So, what I want to do is I want to go through a couple of the things in this story and pull out what God asks Gideon to do in the face of trials that are way too big for him to overcome, with tools, with no tools at his disposal, basically. And this story is what I want to highlight because it's probably the story in the Old Testament that highlights uh, God working despite man, probably in one of the best ways, I would argue. There's, there's pretty much that's every, that's every Bible story, but this one, it just comes to life for me is that it's so unlikely and it's such a long shot and yet God is so desperate to save his people that he just uses the most unlikely scenario. So there's a couple things I want to pull out from this and I think it'll encourage you. The first thing or a similarity that I noticed between this story and what's going on in our world today 
is that the first thing God asks Gideon to do is to tear down idols. To tear down, uh, they're, the, they're just idols to Baal, it's kind of the, the, the false god of the day. And uh, before God can do anything through Gideon to raise up an army and, 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 and set God's people free from their oppressors, before he can do any of that, uh, he says, you've got to go back to your father's hometown and you've got to tear down those things. You gotta tear down those idols. They, they, they just can't exist. I have to be. Uh, I have to be the source of worship. It's too, it, I have to be who you are um, worshiping and trusting. And I, those things can't be standing. You have to tear those things down first. And uh, this, is the way, this is what I feel like is happening in our world today. Is the things that keep us stable are being shaken. And God's people would often build these idols because at least it was understandable, you know? There it is. It's right there. It's kind of silly that it's a wooden post in a field, but at least it makes sense to me. And I can identify with that so much. And uh, some of the, the idols I would think today are just stability and certainty, uh, be it financial, be it social. And that's all just being shaken loose right now. And the God of at least our culture would probably definitely be something along the lines of comfort and security. And nothing is certain at the moment. At least that's the way, that's the way that it feels in everybody's hearts. So what happens? What happens when idols get torn down? What happens when they start to fail us and uh, they fall over and we see them for what they really are? I think what happens is it exposes what's already been true. It exposes what's true inside everybody's hearts, is when the things of this world get shaken, it's like, okay, what's true beyond it? What's true beyond the things of this world that I look to to hold on to sometimes? And when those things fail me, what's, what's still true in my heart? And I guess that's been my main, uh, my main thought exercise these days. It's like, oh man, nothing is certain, Lord. This has, what about this as a gift? What about this is the gift? Because I see you in scripture just very relentless in making sure that there's things that we don't worship more than you. That seems to be one of the things you do a lot. In this story, it's very obvious. Gideon, go tear that thing down. And everyone's going to be really annoyed at you, by the way. And it's going to make everybody feel really uncomfortable. <sighs> but it exposes what's always true. And this was giving me a lot of peace these, in this last week. Is that as... You see idols crumbling, and as you see the stability and uncertainty of this world and the things that we just, you know, rely on, even church culture, hey, you know, we just kind of go on day in and day out, and it's just like, oh, yeah, see you on Sunday, and even that's not there. You're just going, gosh, all the things that I leaned on just seem to be kind of crumbling. And uh, I have found myself in this time to be filled with peace and hope and calm. And it's not, and the, and the exposing of idols, which I know is an extreme word to use for stability, but we can make it that very easily. The exposing of idols has deepened my peace because it's made what's true about who God is in my heart even louder and easier to see. I'm not saying this to gloat. I'm saying that this is just what's true for Christians in general, is always in scripture. 
when an idol is torn down, the power and presence of God is made more tangible. And he comes through and he does what he always wanted to do and was always trying to do because he is in control and he knows what's best for his people. So I actually filled, I'm filled with peace. And then I did this thing where I felt really bad for feeling peaceful. Again, I'm not saying naive. <laughs> you know, I'm washing my hands and stuff. <laughs> but it's, but it's, uh, it's different than, I'm not ignoring facts. But the facts aren't dictating my, my standing with God. They certainly aren't dictating his authority over this world. So I've actually been grateful to see some of these things crumble. I'm not saying it's not tension-filled and a little heavy, but it is worthwhile. And so what's funny is I don't think any of those things were going to be our salvation anyways, ironically, right? We knew they weren't. And so it's kind of handy when they get torn down. So I think people panic when their sources of security crumble. Uh, but our peace speaks to who's in control. And so please don't feel bad for being peaceful in this time. It just speaks of who's in control. Again, not saying naive, naive optimism. That's just annoying. But peace is different. Peace is, is present in a moment because it transcends the reality. It transcends our understanding because it's based in a who. And it's based in a relationship. So don't feel bad about being peaceful <laughs> if you feel that way like I did. Another thing I noticed is that uh, in the Gideon story, uh, a righteous few were appointed and they were commissioned. And uh, what's funny is that, um, again, everything about the story is so unlikely, right? So God, there's, a, uh, there's actually quite a large army that Gideon musters up, hey, just from the people and Israel at the time. And... Uh, Lots, something like 30,000 or something like that. It's a big, big force. And then they're all marching along uh, to battle and they're all really thirsty and they come across this place that's now known as the Gideon Spring. And they all rush down to it and a bunch of them go face first in the water and start lapping up the, the, the water like, like dogs, it says. And then a very select few um, uh, lapped up the water like, like this, like with their hand. And there's been some theories about, you know, and the God said that, you know, only the people that did this uh, were allowed to be in the army, which was only like 300, 300 of them, very, very few. And uh, there's lots of theories as to why that is. Uh, some people have said that, you know, these people kept their eyes on the, you know, enemy at hand and they're better warriors or something. Uh, my favorite explanation and exegesis of this, of this story, uh, we actually heard uh, from our guide in Israel when, when we went on a couple of tours there. Uh, super insightful guy. And he said that probably the most likely, he's a Jewish scholar, and he says probably one of the most likely uh, explanations of this is that the pe whatever, when you're thirsty and when you're desperate and when you're tired, the things that come most naturally to you happen. And so the people that fell flat on their face would have been people that worshipped Baal, just flat on their face, and that would have been what came most naturally to them in their time of desperation and thirst. And what God was probably doing in that time was weeding out all the Baal worshippers in Israel from the ones who worshipped Yahweh. Now that's pretty interesting. Uh, and I think what happens is that uh, those who worship God are the ones that God wanted to use. 
the ones that exalted him as king and the ones that had the ones the ones whose affection was for him those are the ones that God was like I want to use you and that's actually all that I need I just need you to worship me I don't need an army of 30,000 I need people that acknowledge me and and are used to worshiping me and are used to putting me first and don't often succumb to the idols of this world and uh, what happens in times of panic and need is we go back to our old habits and we do what comes most naturally to us and it's to grab on to the things of this world that make sense to us and God's like I want to appoint a righteous few to actually be uh, to be my instruments and their primary job description is that they trust me and that they worship me and so I think our worship also speaks to who's in control. Who are we worshiping in this time? I don't know. We, got, we don't have Sunday services and we don't have, you know, our amazing worship leaders leading us in worship once a week. But some of us wind, have found us with some time on our hands, eh? <laughs> some time on my hands, at least in quiet and in silence. And may, can I encourage you, church, to deepen your worship in this time? To deepen your affection for God? and to not go back to old habits, and to not grasp for the idols and try to find stability, it will bring panic, most likely. And it won't be, it's, that's not where our ultimate security should lie. And in this, and in this time, I'm not saying be unwise and don't take necessary measures in whatever way seems most appropriate as we're guided and led by the, our, our government. But at the same time, uh, what would it look like for us to, in these times of solitude, to really deepen our worship and to not just, not just see the idols falling down, but to raise up a, a, uh, a deep affection and appreciation for our God and to not just long for the idols to come back. <laughs> it's wild, hey? It's just wild. That may, maybe God's giving us a huge gift that we get to worship Him even more deeply because the things that distract us just aren't there. Maybe it's a gift. A third observation that I see is that Gideon just gets given some weird tools to use in this battle. It's just bizarre. More unlikely scenarios. Um, he's got to fight a war of countless Midianites. He already has 300 people because God said, I just want the people that, you know, are worshiping me. Doesn't matter how many there are, I just need them to trust me. Which, with what's coming next, makes sense because he says, here's what we're gonna do. We're not even gonna use swords. We're gonna use pitchers and torches and trumpets. <laughs> pitchers, torches, and trumpets. And the plan, well, I'll just read this, this part out. This is Judges 7, 19 to 21. This is the big plan. So Gideon and the 100 men who are with him, sorry, it was only 100 men, 100 men who are with him, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and, and the army ran crying out as they fled. So there's not a lot of <laughs> people in Gideon's army surround this camp and they break their pitchers and basically give away their position 
in the night. Light torches, not a great plan, by the way. You know, element of surprise at least. No, let's just make noise. Um, so what's the point? Uh, for whatever God is doing right now and whatever he's asking of us, it's going to be a little unconventional. And it's not going to make a lot of sense to us. And it's going to require an immense amount of trust in whatever he's, in who he is. And it's, it's going to require a deep belief that he's actually up to something in this time and a conviction that he wants to set people free and make himself known. And as that conviction rests on our hearts, uh, the tools just really stop mattering. And this is uncomfortable for me because I like tools. And I like pitching people on the best tool and what to use and what to do in this time and how to make the most of this and how to, uh, I don't know, spare people from pain and just like, hey, look, just do this. It's going to make sense to you. Just show up to the thing. Just <laughs> do this thing. It's going to be great. And there's nothing wrong with that. But all the tools have shifted and I don't really know what to do. And they all look really unconventional. But uh, what do you have? What do you have? What is God asking you to use in this time to bring his light and hope to the world? What's he asking you to do? You got a phone? You got the internet? I don't know what you have, but it's enough. Because just like Gideon's army, all he needed was people that would worship him and put him first. And he does the rest. And he gets all the glory in this story. So convicting. So, I think our faith-filled activity also speaks to who's in control. Because in this time, we're supposed to batten down the hatches. And in many ways, it's wisdom to do so. But I don't think the kingdom's going to stop advancing. I don't think God's any less interested in wanting to set his people free. I don't think he's any less interested in wanting himself to be known. In fact, this could be one of the most important times to make himself known as all the idols of this world are just falling apart. And so, here's what I think is really, really fascinating. Is why would... I'll be honest with you, guys. Um, there's this lie that went through my head as I was thinking about what to share today. And it was, don't push people to do things. Don't advance the kingdom. Don't, don't take ground. But I'm sorry, that's just not, uh, it's just not the God that I know. I don't think that's his heart. Because yes, I think our faith-filled activity really empowers us and we have tremendous opportunity right now to be the church. And I wish I could give you more practical things. But when I say we have a tremendous opportunity to be the church, I mean that in the most holistic sense. Because I don't know what that looks like. And all the things that we sometimes idolize as the church all don't exist anymore for a time. And so we have an opportunity to have faith-felt activity. But here's the thing, is as I fought through that battle of going, I fought through that battle of going, God, like, what are you up to? Where are you going? I started to realize, uh, what if this is what we've been praying for? <laughs> Feels weird to say out loud. But I'm not, 
I'll, in this time, I'm not thinking about so much how to survive as I am about, like, what is God doing in revival? How is he bringing his, <laughs> his glorious light into this world through what, through what seems like darkness? And all these scriptures keep coming through my head. It's like God redeems these things. And, he, and he, what was meant for evil, he turns into good. And I don't know. I, I don't understand. I don't pretend to understand. And I don't need to understand. But as I anchor myself in, in, in faith-filled steps forward, going, no, we're going to be the church still. In fact, there's probably never been a better time. What happens is kind of twofold. One is I get encouraged being like, I wonder what God's doing. And I'm filled with wonder and intrigue as to but what's up. But secondly, I'm deeply comforted because my eyes are shifted off of what I'm capable of doing and not on what he's capable of doing. And my trust in him of like, where are you going? What are you doing? What are you up to? Comforts me dramatically because it builds my trust. And I can't think of something better to give you uh, in a time of uncertainty than trust in God and what he's capable of doing. So yes, I do think we should have faith-filled activity in this time. And I would encourage you to think about what that looks like for you. I want to read you uh, something to end us here. And it's an excerpt from a blog post that was written by uh, William Merle, uh, who's a, he's leading the Every Nation Seminary that's starting soon. Uh, and he wrote an amazing blog post just on the history of different, actually, um, uh, different outbreaks in history that were obviously way worse than, than this one because of the sign of the times and it was a pre-medical, you know, pre-advancement in science for sure. So it's not meant to be alarmist, but uh, there were some amazing preachers that, that, that responded to these situations and the church grew dramatically in these times. And one of them is Spurgeon. And I want to read out to you uh, a piece of William's blog post here. And it kind of goes back and forth between William's words and Spurgeon, Spurgeon's words. And I think it'll make sense to you, but I was really encouraged by this. So. Um, in the summer of 1854, a young, inexperienced pastor in London found himself in the middle of a terrifying cholera outbreak. As the recent hired pastor of New, of New Park Street Chapel, 20-year-old Charles Spurgeon, who went on to be one of the most influential preachers of all time, probably, did his best to serve his new congregation by visiting the sick and dying. At the height of the epidemic, Spurgeon was conducting funerals almost every day, and he began to slip into fear and despair. This is Spurgeon's words now. I became weary in body and sick at heart. My friends seemed falling one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. However, one day, Spurgeon was walking home from yet another funeral, and he noticed a handwritten paper posted, a handwritten paper posted in a shoemaker's window. Uh, it was written Psalm 91, 9 and 10. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge... No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Spurgeon writes of that moment, The effect upon my heart was immediate. Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil, and I suffered no harm. Though fear and panic are natural human responses to global pandemics, the Christian, and in particular the Christian leader, is called to embody a different spirit. It is our calm in the face of uncertainty that really shows who we are and whose we are. 
Many years later, there was another cholera outbreak in London, but Spurgeon was ready. His spirit was calm and poised to be used by God. Speaking to a group of pastors, he charged. And now again, it is the minister's time. And now is the time for all of you who love souls. You may see men more alarmed than they, al than they are already. And if they should be, mind that you avail yourselves of the opportunity of doing them good. You know of him who died to save. Tell them of him. In the end, the calm of the Christian in the face of crisis is not a display of stoicism, which just means, I don't care. It's not a display of self-reliance. It is a display of Jesus, the only human who has ever been perfectly calm in a storm. So here's the question. What is the climate of your soul in this moment? Do you look more like Spurgeon during the first cholera outbreak, weary, afraid, and despairing? Or do you look more like Spurgeon during the second cholera outbreak, full of faith, saying, now is the minister's time? And you and I, church, whether we feel like it or not right now, are ministers of reconciliation and the gospel. And there's probably never been a more important time to be sure of that, both for the sake of your own soul and heart and for the sake of those around you. And I wish I could give you something practical to do. I wish I could say, here's the plan, follow this link, it's going to be across the screen at the bottom. But right now, uh, we need to hear from the Holy Spirit. And in this quiet, I would invite you to have the courage to ask Him, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? I accidentally said something profound on a phone call one time. And uh, it was kind of summing up my journey with uh, some of the stuff that we've done with youth pastors in the city. And like I said, I'm an ideas guy, and I tend to idolize them. And I hate it when my plans don't work. <laughs> I find it annoying. But I've learned how to kind of push those things aside and be like, you know what, actually, I think that all of my plans weren't really the point. And so the thing that I said, which I've actually found to be super helpful since, <laughs> I know it's a little narcissistic to be comforted by your own quote, but whatever. Um, it was this, it was all my plans are failing, but all of my hopes are coming true. And I'll tell you what, I don't have, uh, I don't have any faith in my plans, but I have some deep hopes. We've been praying for a long time. For big, big things, like seeing cities saved and seeing thousands come to know Jesus. And there's been people praying for that for a very long time. And in this moment, and you can join me if you like, I am choosing to dethrone myself as the authority on the best way to do that. I have no idea. But I know that I want that. I know that Jesus is the hope of this world and that he longs to save and that he fills us with his power and presence which is better than life. That's what I long for. I long for it more than anything else. 
please don't lose sight of that, church. That's what our church is built on. And every Sunday, we point to the banner that's not here right now. But as a, it's, we want to multiply disciples who love God one another in the world. And maybe we just planted 200 churches in the last week. I don't know. But I believe in you. And I believe that God can use anybody. And our church is built, the church is built, on the fact that the Holy Spirit lives, is living, and is active in everyone. And all He needs is people that worship Him, that don't rely on idols, and that trust Him enough to use whatever that is before them. Lord, uh, these are uncertain times, and it's hard to know what to think, and it's hard to know what to make of the situation. I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding. I pray that you would give us, I pray that you would anoint all of those that you've put in charge to lead us in the practicals and in the facts. I pray that you would give us wisdom and, uh, and best practices on how to keep each other safe. Um, I pray that you would be swift in healing our land. I pray that there would be, uh, that you would heal, that you would heal bodies. I pray that this epidemic would be swift and over soon. I pray for those things. God, you don't long for calamity or pain, and you don't, you don't enjoy anything about that. And Lord, I also pray that your church would recognize its opportunity in this time to be your hands and be your feet. Lord, I pray that the church would be fearless in its passionate advancement of the gospel. That it would be so, that it would long so much for your kingdom to come that fear would have no place. God, I thank you that you are in control. Help us to live like you are in control. Would we reserve our judgment of you? Would we dethrone ourselves as the authority in our lives? And I pray that what would rush into that void is your peace and your presence and your comfort and your plans and your purposes. God, may this be a spiritually fruitful time, not just for our hearts, but for our city and our nation. Lord, would you set people free in this time? Set us free from our idols. Your word says that if, if my people will gather and pray and be humble, be humbled, that you will heal their land. So God, would you heal our land physically and spiritually? This is the cry of our hearts. This is the mission of the church. And would you commission us into this now? In Jesus' name, amen.